Let's pray. Our most eternal and everlasting Father, we are thankful this morning for your love and your mercy. Thankful that you've been such a gracious God, perfect in all your ways, showing your mercy in abundance to us. Thank you for the faithfulness that you have displayed over each and every one of us in this passing week. And we have gathered together to study a portion of your word because you have commanded us to do so, especially as we see the evil days drawn near. We know we are in a tumultuous times, but underneath are the everlasting arms that sustain us. So, Father, we pray that as we begin this morning to study a portion of your word, that the Holy Spirit, the, com- uh, the, the communicator of the truth, will then enable each and every one of us to hear precisely what you want us to hear. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 to 13. I'm going to begin reading at verse 8. It is, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not taste the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happen to them as examples, and we are written down as warning for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now the message of First Corinthians uh, chapter 10 verses 5 through 5, uh, 13 that we have been considering is that enjoyment of God's blessing under a good spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. So we have noted that this message implies that we are being warned against the evil desires of some of the Israelites the Lord killed in the desert. Subsequently, the Holy Spirit, through Apostle Paul, provided us examples or results of their evil desires that we should avoid. In effect, we are given some of the evil things they did. The first of all of the evil things that some of the Israelites of Exodus uh, generation desired or were guilty that led to their death is idolatry. The second is sexual immorality. The third is constantly doubting of God's power and faithfulness to provide for Israel. Now this failure is described as testing or putting Christ to the test, as stated in the first part of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, where it reads, 
We should not test the Lord as some of them did. Now in our last study, we also noted that it is a sin to test the Lord or to put him to the test. Now this assertion we indicated may cause problem due to the uh, examples we find in the scripture in which either God invited believers to test him or he was not angry when he was tested. Now because of this we raise the question when is it correct to test the Lord? To answer this question, we also stated that we need to consider the examples in which either God invited human to test him or where he was put to the test by humans without him being angry. So we begin with these examples. A first example where the Lord was put to test but he was not angry or at least his action implies that, his, that he welcomed that testing was his interaction with Gideon when he commissioned him to be the agent of Israel's deliverance from the Midianites. Now Gideon puts out a test by which he would uh, be sure that God was sending him to carry out the task of deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Midianites, as we read in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, verses 36 through 38. I hold on to that passage. Judges chapter 6 verse 36 reads, Gideon said to, Moses, uh, to God, If you will serve Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know. That you have said that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, he squeezed the fleas and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So Gideon received the proof as he requested. In effect, God did exactly what he asked. So it would seem Gideon got his confirmation in the way he asked of God. But he was not content, so to speak. He wasn't content. In that he went a step further in his request for another sign to confirm that the Lord was sending him, as we read. In beginning of verse 39, the same Judges 6, uh, look at verses 39 and 40. It reads, Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. 
Allow me one more test with the fleas. This time, make the fleas dry and the ground covered with you. That night, God did so. Only the fleas was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So the Lord granted the request of Gideon without being angry. Now, there are probably possible reasons God was not angry with him. Gideon pleaded with God not to be angry with him before he made his second request of confirmation that God was actually sending him to the difficult task of delivering the Israelites from the hands of the Midianites. And another reason is that because Gideon pleaded with God indicates that he believed in the reality of God and in his power. In fact, it's probably because he believed in the power of God that he asked for a sign that he believed only God could grant him. Another possible reason is that God would have considered Gideon as functioning in a way that is in keeping with his word in wanting two independent witnesses to convince him that God was sending him. That he wanted two independent witnesses. Now this will be in keeping though with the instruction of God to Israel regarding how to establish the truth of a matter before a person is considered guilty or convicted of a crime as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15. Deuteronomy Chapter 19, verse 15. It is, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now it is true that the instruction given here has to do with deciding a case of someone accused of a crime. But the principle applies even for situations that do not involve a crime. In other words, if you have to make a decision about certain things, you must get at least two independent witnesses, especially those who are in position of authority. You don't take just one person's voice and you groan with it. Unless you have a way to prove or to confirm what you have heard. So in this case, if a person wants to be sure of something on which the person is to take an action that is of dire consequence. 
See, when you convict a person, that's of a dire consequence. So if you are going to make a decision, uh, and you're in a leadership role, or even if you're not. You know, some of us, we hear somebody tell us something, oh, that person said this about you, and we're wrong with it. You don't know that. You haven't confirmed it. You just have from one, one source. And you, either you get angry or whatever it is, but you only have from one source. You haven't confirmed it. So, it is it's important, this principle here, can be applied in many other ways of our life. Therefore, it is possible that Gideon will have reason in his mind that leading Israel to war is such a serious undertaking that he will not want to rely only on one witness of the first miracle. So he wanted a second witness of miracle. Now if this is the case, God will have not judged Gideon as not trusting him or doubting him, but of applying the criterion he gave for establishing the truthfulness of a matter. So it is probably for this reason that the Lord was not angry with Gideon or charged him of putting the Lord to test. Because he asked for one thing, God did it. Then he flipped it and said, Again, you know, do this. So, these reasons I've given may be why the Lord did, was not angry with him. Another example that involved testing God or God inviting someone to put him to the test is that of King Ahaz. When Judah was threatened by the king of Israel, in alliance with some foreign powers. Now after God assured him of victory, he then invited King Ahaz to ask for any sign from him. That's what God gave him an invitation. As we read in Isaiah chapter 7 verses 10 through 17. Isaiah chapter 7 verses 10 through 17. It is again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord you are God for a sign whether in the deepest Death or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Here now, you, house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you? Try the patience of my God also. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 
he will eat cuts and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So God here invited Ahaz to ask for a sign from him. But the king refused. His reason stating that uh, uh, he would not want to put the Lord to the test. Now on a surface reading, the response of uh, Ahaz to the Lord's invitation to ask for a sign, his answer seemed to be due to faith. That is to say that he walks, or in this case a person who walks by faith, not by sight, as faithful believers should in accordance with the declaration of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Second Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter five verse seven. It is we live by faith, not by sight. Now that would have been see sign maybe could be uh, a way of saying, well, I don't want to live by faith. That, it all depends on what it is. But he will have implied that he did that. That's why he didn't want to sign. But that's not the case. Or we could also say that Ahaz uh, refused to ask for a sign because of honoring the word of God that commands Israel against putting the Lord to the test. Because that's what he said. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. However, none of these is likely uh, reason because despite God's goodness to him, he was not a faithful king of Judah in that he was not described in the same manner of the faithful kings of Judah that were portrayed as believers. Instead, he was described negatively as we read in Second Kings chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Second Kings chapter 16. Second Kings chapter 16, verse 2 reads, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now David is a standard king. 
And of course, he descends from the line of David. That's why David is called his father. His great, great, great grandfather. He said, verse 3 says, He walked in the ways of the king of Israel. The king, the ways of the king of Israel is idolatry. So he said, He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. So that tells you he was deeply involved in idolatry. Following the detestable ways of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So Ahab, probably, didn't want any sign from the Lord because he had made up his mind to seek help from the Assyrian king instead of trusting the Lord. See, one of those things, they will tell you, yeah, I'm open-minded. They've already made up their mind. They know what they want to do. They just give that impression. If you, you know, if you tell me, I will change my mind, whatever it is. But usually, most people on this planet do not want the truth. They plan to, or they pretend, but really when it comes down to it, not many of us actually want the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. We want anything but the truth. Now, in this particular case, he has made up his mind, really, what he wants to do. That's why when the prophet told him, ask for a sign. He said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to taste the Lord. But really, he has already made up his mind. He's going to, to rely on a foreign king. This we know from the same second king, chapter 16. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglat Pelesha, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. See, he, he has already made up his mind, like I said. This is uh, Tiglat Pelesa was a very powerful king at that time. And that's what we relied upon, not the Lord. And that's why Mizarum will taste the Lord. That was just what you call a smoke screen. But that's really not what he has. Verse 8 again says, And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord, and in the treasuries of the royal palace, and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to care and put resin to death. So anyway, the Lord offered Ahaz the opportunity to ask for a sign, knowing that he would not do so, since his plan did not call for him to take up that uh, invitation given to him to ask for a sign from the Lord. The Lord's plan was to give a sign that involves a woman giving birth to a special child. Now we are not at this point concerned with the interpretation of the sign, but simply to recognize that God gave sign to Ahaz 
despite his refusal to ask for a sign. But this sign is a little bit different. Anyway, since the Lord is one that invited uh, to be tested, then his invitation to Ahaz could really not be wrong. Anyway, there's still another example we need to consider before then we deal with the issue of when it is proper to test the Lord in a way that will not become a sin since there is a direct command not to test the Lord. So since we know that, we are trying to establish, looking at various examples to help us come to that conclusion of when to do it and will not be displeasing to the Lord. Now another example that involves testing God or God inviting someone to put him to the test is the lost invitation to Israel that returned from Babylonian captivity to test him by fully carrying out tightened instruction as we read in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. Malachi Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 reads Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that that there may be food in my house Test me in this. That's the Lord invited. That's an invitation. He said, test me in this. Says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now this passage is certainly one of the favorites. Of preachers for advocating fighting. Although they ignore the uniqueness of the instruction of bringing tithe into God's house. First, they ignore the purpose of bringing food to the storehouse, is to provide food for priests and Levites who served in the temple. Because that's where God had told Israel when he when the land was distributed, the tribe of Levi did not really actually get its own territory. But every uh, tribe had to set aside certain cities for the uh, Levites and the priests. Because the priests have that function, the Levites, they have the function of serving the entire Israel on their spiritual needs. And that is why they had to be taken care of in a different way. Of course, uh, some of uh, the preachers, then falsely equate 
in their mind, priest, uh, the preachers today to priests and Levites. Because they say, well, uh, the storehouse is used to provide food for priests and Levites who serve in the temple. Therefore, the preachers should also receive tithes in the same way. That's the argument. Second, they ignore the fact that God's house refers to the temple in Jerusalem. That is what they completely ignore. No house of worship today is the temple of God. In the same sense of the temple in Jerusalem, since all believers form the temple of God. See, collectively, as we all gather this morning, we form the temple. Collectively. Sure, we have a, a, a building that we dedicated to uh, assembling together, which we, you know, we should have some respect for that, no doubt. But it is still not the same as the temple that we have in this passage, because that's a special kind of building set up in a different way. Anyway, so it is really not my intention to deal with the doctrine of tithing at this point. Since, if you recall, some of you, we have dealt with that story in detail many years ago now, probably about a long time, when we studied Genesis chapter 14. So, it's not that I want to do that, but really what I want to do is to give you a very simple reason for recognizing that this command to bring tithe does not apply to Christians. I want to give you a very simple explanation. When we went through a, a lot of details when we studied it. But let, just, let me give you just one simple uh, argument or reason to understand so that even if you don't have to remember all other things, how to explain tight and all that, and you know, people, you know, yeah, people say, well, I, you know, things have been rough for me, but since I started tightening, things have gotten better. <laughs> well, you can't argue with that person, but what you can always do if you know the scripture well, you say, yeah, it's not because you're tightening. It's because you are now doing what God intends for us to do, which is to give. That's why, that's why you being prospered. It's not because you're tithing. You're not giving. It's not, a, it's not a percentage or whatever you, you do. It's just that now you are giving. And with that aside, the argument or the reason you can put to a person as to why tithe is not for Christians is very easy. And this is that the reason is that we are not under the Levitical priesthood. That's the reason. That we are not under Levitical priesthood, but under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so that nothing that was used in worship under Levitical priesthood applies today. Nothing. I mean, there are people today, they do... Uh, full of some of the Levitical principle practices. A child is born, they bring a goat, 
a cow, whatever, to their local assembly to thank God for it. <laughs> but that's going back to the Levitical priesthood. It's not called for. So those people who do those kind of things and those who tithe are ignoring the simple fact. We are not under Levitical priesthood. That's all. If you don't remember anything, just tell that person. We are not under Levitical priesthood. That's why we don't tithe. Now, the thing is, since we are not under Levitical priesthood, everything using it cannot apply to us. Now, this, the truth I'm advocating here is implied by the statement recorded in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. Hebrews 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 chapter 7 verse 12 Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 reads For when there is a change of priesthood there must also be a change of the law now, of course, we, you know, we studied this in detail when we studied the book of Hebrew. But here is the thing that if there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in law. Well, that law means not just the law that governs um, sacrifices and so on and so forth, but everything that's involved in the uh, Levitical priesthood has to be changed. So, if there's a change... As this passage tells us clearly that because of the change in priesthood from Levitical to that of the Lord Jesus Christ, there must be a change in law. A part of that change in law is that everything used in worship under Levitical priesthood no longer applies to those of us under the priesthood of Christ. That, if you don't remember anything, that's it's a simple one to remember. Oh yeah, we don't, you know, Christians are not to tithe because we're not under the Levitical priesthood. And here's the point, here's the proof in Hebrews 7 verse 12. Now so if, if tithe is given, that violates the principle then given in the Hebrews. That's one thing. It will violate that principle. Since it says when now there has to be a change in law. So if we go back to Titan under Levitical priesthood, well, what is the change in law? That's one thing. But then there's another thing though, and that is, as we say, to whom is the tithe to be given? Or who is to benefit from it? Since there are no specialized priests in the church of Christ. Now don't mind those who call uh, their shepherds priests. They are not priests in a, a, a specialized way. Every believer is a priest in Christ. So anyway, as I said, our concern really at this point is not with titan. 
But with the invitation the Lord gave Israel. See, he invited. God said, taste me. Bring distance, bring your tithe, and taste me to see what I'm going to do. So the invitation, again here, that is given in the expression of uh, Malachi three times, say, taste me in this, taste me in this. The invitation of the Lord to Israel is for the people to prove him, to prove him in a positive manner by obeying his command regarding Titan as given in the Old Testament scripture. Now, we remember when we started, we saw there are three kinds of types. We only think about one type, no, but there are three kinds. But here's the thing God has given them instruction. You tithe following this uh, procedure. Now, when He said, Test me, it means obey what I instructed and see what I will do. Just again, all I'm saying is that the invitation is for Israel to trust the Lord so as to obey His instruction. Israel must have faith that the Lord will keep his word. Thus, the tests that the Lord invited Israel to respond involves faith and obedience. Let's become the key now for our answer. Faith and obedience. So, as I say, this observation then, helps us in answering the question of when it is proper to test the Lord without sinning. When can you... I mean, I want you to get it clear. It's a very simple statement. But it's taken a long way to come to that simple statement. So you can know what we've established is sound based on the passages we've gone through. So then the answer to the question... Or when it is proper to test the Lord, is that whenever the test is an expression of faith and obedience. Whenever you put the Lord to the test, if it is an expression of your faith, and because you are obedient, then that is proper. So this means that when we claim a particular promise of God's word and say to God that we expect him to be faithful to his word, we are testing the Lord in a positive way because we believe his promise and his person. Now to be clear, it is wrong to test God in the sense of asking him to do something when we doubt his ability to do whatever it is we want him to do. And also, when we live in disobedience to him. So the point is that when we have faith and live in obedience to God's word and ask the Lord to do something to demonstrate his power, that is not the same as challenging him to act because we doubt his power. 
to act or to be faithful to us as Israel constantly did in the desert. Of course, we should recognize that it will be wrong to test the Lord in the sense that we will do something that some call for or foolish and then expect God to prove himself. So this point that we have made was demonstrated when Satan wanted Jesus Christ to jump off the highest point of the temple with the justification that God promised to keep him from being harmed as we read in Matthew chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It is, then the devil that Satan took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Here is what he said, for it is written, he is now quoting the scripture, he will command his angels concerning you. Now one of the things that you have to remember is, Satan can quote the scripture. He knows the scriptures well. So that's why we always say, just because somebody put in the scripture doesn't necessarily mean it's correct. The context, the interpretation must also be correct. Otherwise, people quote scriptures and that's why you hear all these people justify all kinds of things they do just quote in the Bible. That they forget completely the context. So that's what Satan does here. He said, he will command, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands. So that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now there is no reason for a person to see danger and run towards it. Because of God's promise to protect believers. Not always to say something dangerous. You just run towards it. Say, okay, God's going to protect me because he promised to protect me. That's being foolish. So that, this was a, in effect what Satan wanted Jesus to do. In this case, of course, he tied it. If you are the son of God, which he knew, he is. Because, you know, he won't, Satan won't tempt you uh, uh, and I in that way. He won't tempt us in that way. He will only tempt us in what he knows we are capable of doing. You know, Satan is not going to tell you, well, let's try to turn stone into bread. Because we know he can, we can do it. So he did that to him. So anyway, so that's why he wanted Jesus to do what, as son of God, he could do. I mean, he can jump there and nothing will happen to him. 
Because that's not really the whole point. If he did, the issue would have been he's obeying the devil anyway. So, when Satan wanted Jesus to do was misapplication of the scripture. So, Jesus responded to Satan that doing such will be putting God to the test. In the same Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 7, the next verse, verse 7. Verse 7 says, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That is what he said. Yeah, he quoted, and the Lord said, Yeah, you quoted one, but also remember this one, which is the one that is appropriate at this, at this point. The promise of some is a different thing in the context of him testing Christ. So Christ said, but also he said, don't test the Lord. Now, not to put God to the test, that means you don't do something foolish and say, okay, God is going to protect me. That's testing him. Anyway, so the response of the Lord here then indicates that we should not act foolishly and then force God to do something for us because of his promise to care and protect the believer. So the point is that if we do something that's uncalled for or foolish and ask God to do something to counter the effect of what we are to do, such will be the wrong kind of testing God. In other words, you know, you shouldn't do that. It just it doesn't call for anything but foolishness. He says, I still want to do it. God has said, He said, He's going to protect me. And then you go ahead and do it. Again, all I'm saying is you cannot see danger. And run towards it and ask the Lord to prove himself as that will be testing him in a wrong way. Anyway, we should also be careful that when we want God to prove himself that we are not governed by lust as the Israelites were when they requested meat from the Lord, as stated in Psalm 78, verse 18. Psalms 78, verse 18. Psalm 78, Verse 18. It is they willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. Now interesting. Israelites in their craving or lost for meat wanted God to prove that he cared for them. By providing what they lusted after or craved. 
In other words, you have a loss of something. Say, okay, Lord, you know, prove to yourself now that you're faithful, you take care of me. And whatever it is that you're craving for, it's not something you should. That's what Israel did. Their desire or request was considered putting the Lord to the test in the wrong way. Now, thus, we must be careful that we are not asking the Lord to prove himself to meet our lust or craving. Anyway, it is important that we put God to the test as an expression of our faith as we live in obedience to his word. See, people, I mean, when I talk about loss of craving, you take, for example, people say, well, that person drives a fanciful car or has a fanciful house. Lord, I need to, I should have one because I'm, I'm a believer. Now prove yourself to me by doing that. That's a, that's a, that is purely testing the Lord because that is nothing but something out of loss. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Anyway, all I'm saying is we must be careful that we are not asking the Lord to prove himself to meet our lusts or craving. Anyway, it is also important that we put God to the test really as an expression of our faith as we live in obedience to his word. So, when you claim his word and say, Lord, you say this. Now prove it. That is the kind of test that's correct. Because you now see, Lord, you, yeah, you, you say this. And therefore, I want you to honor your word. Under those circumstances, that would be the right thing to do. It wouldn't be the same as testing the Lord that we are uh, looking at here. So it is important though that uh, we understand that we are not we are not to routinely test God or put him to test as he may do to us since it is his prerogative to put us to test. I'm saying you have to be very careful don't routinely test the Lord. In the, even in, in the way that is correct. He, we should know where and when to be careful. But the Lord can routinely test us. There are at least three reasons God may test us based on the information provided in the scripture of God's testing his covenant people. God may test us to purify us, as that was the reason for testing Israel, according to Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 through 9. Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 through 9. It is, 
in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two thirds will be struck down and perish. Yet one third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is our God. So the Lord indicated that two thirds of the people will be struck down and die while they thought will survive. Now it is this thought that will be refined. Now this refining of the remnant is to be understood as purifying them. Now the purified remnants will be tested. Now this passage does not really tell us how the Lord will purify and test the remnant. But from what the Lord said through prophet Isaiah, we may deduce that suffering is one way the Lord purifies and tests his people. Again, let me say that very simple. That it is that the Lord purifies and tests his people through suffering. As we may gather from Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 48 look at verse 10 it is see I have refined you though not as silver I have tested you in the furnace of affliction now that phrase, the furnace of affliction, is an imagery for a situation of pain and trouble that in the end should have a positive outcome. The point is that the Lord could purify us by putting us through some form of suffering as a test. This is why we have to be careful how we read suffering in our lives. So I've said there are two really there are two ways you can read every suffering in your life. At least two ways. You can read it as the Lord testing to purify you, or you can read it as judgment. Those are the two options really. Because when God tests us through suffering, it is to prove of our spiritual maturity. And that is to prove to Satan and his angels that this is surely a matured believer. Case in point, example we know, that's what happened to Job. The Lord said, Okay. Go touch him. Go do everything. There's no one like him. 
That is a test to confirm how mature the believer is. So that you may be tested in ways that bring a lot of suffering may not necessarily mean because you sinned. But again, I usually say we always like to go many times to the lowest point of whatever it is in, in human history instead of going to the higher. Now, it all depends here in the case of suffering. Many people will opt for the one first thing say, well, the Lord is testing me to, mature, uh, to prove my maturity. Yeah, that should really be the higher one. You should go to the, first, the lowest one first. Is, he's testing me. I'm suffering because of something in me. That's where you should begin. And then rule that out. By examining yourself. To know that the suffering is not because of something in you. I mean, when we do all these things, you don't, to do that right, don't think about only yesterday. What you did yesterday. Or even a year ago. Go back a long way. Think about it. Because as I've explained to you, it's not when we sow that we actually reap it. So before you can conclude, well, God is really testing me with sufferings to prove I am matured, you have to rule out that the testing is not because of something in the past. Anyway, another reason the Lord may test us is to prove our obedience to Him. As He did with Israel, as we read in Exodus, chapter 16, verse 4. Exodus chapter 16 verse 4. It is, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instruction. See that clause? And see whether they will follow my instruction. It's another way of saying that the Lord will test Israel to see if they will be obedient to his word. Of course, some of them failed the test because they did not obey the Lord's instruction through Moses. We should recognize that certain individuals around us are probably put in our way by the Lord to use them to test our obedience to his word as he did with Israel when he left some of the uh, nations without destroying them in the time of the conquest of Canaan so he will use those nations to, to see if Israel will obey him and his word especially that of avoiding idolatry, as we read in Judges, chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Judges, chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. It is Therefore, the Lord was angry with Israel and said, 
because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the word of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. See what I'm saying to you is there are people the Lord may put in your life just to test you. That's all it, that's the only purpose they serve. And I think in many, many cases there are a whole lot of people in some local churches, all they are there for is that the Lord will use them to test the other believers. That's all they are there for. So this is why God said, I'm going to not drive this nation, I'm going to lift them to test you. To see if you run into idolatry instead of worshipping me. So again, I, you have to, this is, you have to be practical. There are people in your life that come across your path. They have no other function other than the Lord is using them to test you. You have to remember that. If certain, you know, depending on who you interact with and what's in your path. Anyway, still another reason the Lord may test us is to prove that we love Him. That be the third reason. To prove that we love Him. Test us to see if we're going to be obedient to Him. Then He tests us to see if we're going to love Him. So of course He tests us to purify us. So this test to prove that we love Him is the reason the Lord gave for testing Israel. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. Well, uh, looking at time because of the comment that we follow, I think it's just best for us to take break and after the Lord's Supper, we'll come back to that passage. Uh, please take your elements during the break and as I said, try to work it a little bit to open it before it's time for us to celebrate.